0: Hello and yôkoso. Coming to you from Bento & Co. in Kyoto, Japan, this is Julianne.
1: And this is Tomas. And you are listening to Japanese Food, a podcast where we talk to chef, food writers, creative and other experts on Japanese food culture.
0: This week, we spoke with Momoko Nakamura, an author and online food educator who's passionate about cultural conservation and the intersection of food and environmental responsibility. We talked about how the wisdom of Japanese traditions can help us in our modern age, allowing us to discover the goodness of plant-based eating and low-waste lifestyles.
1: All right, let's dive in.
0: Uh, Today we have the honor of welcoming Momoko Nakamura, actually, to the Bento & Co. office itself, our first ever live, or not live, but in-person podcast recording, um, which we're very excited about. Uh, we learned that Momoko is a local Kyoto, um, fellow Kyotoite. So we were happy that she could actually come, with, uh, walk to our office and talk in person today. So welcome thank- and thank you for coming.
2: Thank you for having me. This welcome. is such a joy. Thank
0: you. <laughs> uh, so to kick things off, Momoko, can you share a bit about the work
2: that you do now and what you focus on? Sure. You know, in thinking about this question, I was You know, I always kind of have a difficult time putting it into very succinct words, so you'll have to pardon me a little bit. But essentially, over the past, I would say, 10 plus years, I've been doing fieldwork across the Japanese countryside. And really what that means is speaking with everyone from brewers and fermenters to farmers and geologists and grandmothers and all different types of people to uncover what it really means in in terms of Japanese food culture and its history and its kind of political nuances and its environmental impact and kind of all of those components that make up this overall food culture. um and so I look at it from kind of a scientific perspective, an agriculture and business perspective, and then also from the home, from ishokuju, from clothing, food, and home, in this kind of sense of creating living or to live in Japan. And as part of this kind of field work, um, I do writing and speaking. And the reason why I am in Kyoto is because I moved here about Two months ago. So very recent. Okay. And until then, yes, until then I was in uh, Tokyo. Yes, uh, hence the book Why It Was in Tokyo. Mm. But um, I moved here because I was looking to dive further into the depths of Japanese food culture. And for many reasons, Kyoto is such a hub for all Mm. of this from a historical perspective, cultural perspective. And even kind of a political perspective as well. And in order for me to really kind of go into the um, foundation of Japanese food culture, I thought I really needed to be here. And what I'm doing currently is um, Japan is said to be made of mountain and of sea Mm -hmm. um, as an island country, as an archipelago. And so I thought I want to dive further into the mountains and further into the sea. Mm -hmm. And so I am beginning work uh, looking into urushi trees mm. that create urushi sap mm-hmm. for lacquer work mm-hmm. um, and lacquer work for tableware. Mm-hmm. And then also diving into the sea uh, by doing more field work around seaweeds of mm. Japan. Mm. <laughs> so. Yes. So again, I couldn't say it in such a succinct way, but
1: basically, <laughs> yeah. yes, continuing to well, so like work. Kyoto, Kyoto is there's no sea here. Yes, we should sure have some mountain, but uh, and we have some lacquerware artisan craftsmen in Kyoto, very famous as well here. But I guess you are also in Kyoto because of this two thousand years old history, having the emperor being here for like hundreds of years, and having so this culture was. You know, a lot of things were made because the emperor was here, right?
2: Right. So I guess... Right. And so many things Mm -hmm. from across Japan were brought to Kyoto, the old capital. So, Mm -hmm. for example, from the sea, from Fukui, there would be fishermen Mm -hmm. who would then uh, follow the sabakaido, the mackerel road, Mm -hmm. um, into Kyoto. And, you know, that's where a lot of preservation, food preservation techniques Mm -hmm. Were honed. And so there's a very much a history of bringing the best of Japan to this central hub.
1: And so Zab- Sabazushi yes. in Kyoto. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> we yeah.
2: talked a bit about that yeah, with about, Makiko right? yeah. uh,
0: for our previous uh, mm. interview with her. Why not, Sabazushi. <laughs> mm.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Also, like some people may have seen you in, um, in Waffle and Mochi on Netflix, right?
2: Yes. Yes, yes. And that, we shot a lot of that in Kansai, actually.
1: Mm.
0: I noticed many spots, the Nara, the Kusamochi. It was fun to see those spots.
2: Yeah. Yeah, So literally, we did Hyogo, Shiga, Kyoto, and Osaka. Mm -hmm. So it was all in this area. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because in this, in this area, there can, in this very condensed area, you can find so many facets of Japanese food culture. And that was a really interesting project because in doing this field work, you know, I, I can't just be hoarding the information myself. Of course, I'm doing the, you know, writing and speaking and that sort of thing. But to be able to really go further into food education is so fascinating to me. And it's, you know, meant to be a children's program, but adults also watch with their children. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of reach the adults yes. as well, which is fun. And that prompted me to do um, other online education programs. Mm-hmm. One is called Japan Food Study, which is very much kind of diving into the, all these various facets of Japanese food culture beyond cooking and eating. Mm-hmm. And then also um, micro-seasonal journaling. So talking about the traditional Japanese micro-seasonal calendar, mm-hmm. Koyomi, the 24 subseasons and the 72 micro-seasons, and how that also connects with uh, the way that we view uh, food culture here. So
0: those are online courses that you've created and that are available on your website, I-, I saw? Mm. So uh, a kind of... A unique way to approach Japanese food culture, not not really a recipe blog or um or like a review of restaurants or something like that, but it's more about the um uh, like a holistic context around food. Yes. Yeah. How you would describe
2: um, Yeah, so it's you know about the micro seasons. For Japan food study, it can be about um micro ethnic communities of um, yesteryear, Japan used to be filled with many different types of micro-ethnic communities. Mm. Um, it's known to be quite a homogenous country now, mm. but it didn't used to be. Mm. Um, and then also about kind of the layers of the earth and how the island country was made from many, many earthquakes. And also about... Um, you know, how climate affects the way that we think about the Four Seasons and agriculture mm. and about um, historical legends as how Japan came to be and food culture and fermenters and, you know, all different topics that is not just about the cooking and eating. Mm. Mm.
1: And But like thinking about all of that, like this tradition and like this like thousands of years of history, What what is left? Mm. Because like for like normal human, I would say, you know, buying a konbini, a convenience store, and, uh, you know, buying food in supermarket and so on. But what is left in Japan for, like, common people about all these traditions and history of food culture?
2: Mm. It's there. It's there, but it's so hidden amongst the many layers of today. Mm. And um, unfortunately, most people... um, most Japanese people don't even know why. So they do, but they don't know why. So for example, in Jap- Japan food study, I talk about, Itadakimasu you know, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Why are our chopsticks horizontal in front of us? As opposed to many Asian cultures that do use chopsticks, sometimes it's vertical, Mm. you know, and that sort of thing that is very much fundamental to what we do every single day, but we don't really think about the Mm. why. And so I like kind of talking about the why because it makes this experience so much richer. Mm. So. Why? Can
0: you share why the chopsticks are? <laughs> um, or is it's that true, uh, is that uh, only for? No, you know, no, no. I'd love to share. Okay. No, I'd
2: love to share. So, um, the chopsticks are horizontal in front of the food because Japan is historically an animistic uh, culture, which means that there's many gods. Gods live within. Rocks and mountains and trees and the stream. The grain and, of rice each. <laughs> yes. And then the grain of rice. And, um, and so the food in front of us, the food in front of me now is, is, you know, little gods and little gods have kind of created all of this. And the, the chopsticks in front of us is essentially the border between the human world and the world of the gods. And so when we say itadakimasu, we are crossing this border into the world of the gods and accepting, you know, their great bounty. And in Japanese chopsticks is called hashi and bridge is called hashi. Hmm. And this homonym is also really important because we essentially use the hashi to cross the hashi into the other world. And so the chopsticks here, horizontal, are a marker of this kind of historic ancestral, um, culture. Wow.
0: Mind blown. (laughs) Even such a small thing that Mm. it uncovers so much depth. And I mean, itadakimasu, I, I appreciate even without knowing it, just as a kind of act of gratitude and stopping, Mm. um, and taking a moment to kind of be aware but now that I know that it's so much more sacred, too. it's a stepping into the yeah sacred world when I eat. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, amazing.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's like bowing before entering like a shot. Yeah, anything.
0: yeah, very very similar. Mm. Yeah. So there's ingrained in Japanese culture. There's so much respect for food, um, and something good to reconnect with as modern day when there's it's it's you know it's easy to just consume without thinking about the origins of our food even you know if it's meat or vegetables you know it's just uh, kind of take it for granted mm. so that's a good reminder to think about all the gods and the, the people uh, who are behind the food that yeah is,
1: walking like, to produce you know yes. so difficult right yes. Yeah.
0: yes have you talked with many farmers in Japan and learned, about, I'm curious what, what you've learned um, about what it's like to be a farmer in Japan, and mm. produce a food producer.
2: Yeah. So, um, until recently, I did a project called Rice 100 and essentially I was creating 100 different blends of rice, um, based on the micro season. So to kind of say it in a very simplistic way, in, the summertime, I would choose varietals that are a little bit more um, light and al dente and um, aromatic. So, so kind of leaning towards basmati, but still in the japonica mm-hmm. varietal. And then in the wintertime, I would choose var- varietals that are much more toothsome and chewy and dense mm-hmm. and richer and sweeter. And in Japan, there are about 400 to 500 varietals that are grown. And I was focusing on the rice that is grown, um, using traditional natural, uh, methodologies. We call it Shizen Nohor, Shizen Saibai. So using absolutely no pesticides, fertilizers or herbicides and, uh, grown kind of how it was grown for 2000 years until post-World War II. Uh, and so through this kind of micro-seasonal change across the year, I was able to kind of tell the story of the Japanese landscape. And my interest was in saying, well, in summertime, when you're looking to eat um, more acidic and kind of lighter, you know, foods, effervescent foods, the the kind of lighter rice varietals uh, go pair best. And then in the wintertime, if you're eating soups and stews and Things that are warming, then the richer denser varietals work. So, choosing your rice varietal, like you would choose your fruits and vegetables, is also a really fun thing. Mm-hmm. And so, in doing so, I was traveling the Japanese countryside, speaking with Shizen Sai by farmers, mm-hmm. um, and talking about why they chose to farm in a natural way as opposed to a conventional way, what we call conventional now. And um, you know whether it's something that they. Uh, carried on from their ancestral lineage or whether this is something that they decided to do on their own or are they new farmers or are they, are they more like um, his, uh, heritage farmers so it was really interesting to kind of hear uh farmer's perspective on the general Japanese food system mm. Mm. Yeah. I didn't know there are so many varieties and sub-varieties
0: of rice yeah. <laughs> amazing. Um, a lot of your work, it seems is around plant-based eating, uh, and you published a book, uh, plant-based guide, uh, uh plant-based Tokyo is the title yes. of the book. Um, so we'd love to hear about that. Your experience of being, um, uh, focused on, uh, plant-based living and, and what that's like in Japan mm. and the challenges there are to living a plant-based
2: life. Mm. Well the the purpose of the book really was to essentially tell the stories of these chefs who mostly cook plant-based mm-hmm. and it was very important for me to create a um an ass- a showcase an assortment of mm-hmm. types of foods mm-hmm. because often especially Japanese people associate plant-based, or I would separate plant-based and vegan, but people think like vegetarian or vegan mm. equals eating like a raw salad. Mm. <laughs> um, but but that's not what it is at all. And um, historically, Japanese people don't eat much animal product at all. Mm-hmm. It's very recent that that start, started to come to be. And just like conventional farming, now people are kind of brainwashed to believe that there's no other type of farming or no other type of farming as possible. Mm. The same with our our table. Everyone believes that we need to have what we call in Japanese food, the main, which Uh is, you know, a big, you know, meat or fish dish. Mm. But traditionally, you know, you have rice and soup, um, you know, Ichiju isai, like rice and soup in like a little dish, or rice and soup in like three little dishes, mm. and that was already quite a feast. Mm. And so, this kind of spectrum of types of foods was important. It's just yes, it's like traditional leaning Japanese food is can be plant based. Also, Italian food can be plant based, and soba can be plant based, and you know everything is within kind of the plant based mm. genre from my perspective. Mostly, fu- uh, fruit. Veg, grain and bean base. And by going into these chefs' stories, I wanted to create some sort of like human connection to the food because often these chefs, you know, aren't just cooking, but it's their relationships with the greengrocers or the farmers or the brewers that really make that food possible. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite chefs, she was talking about you know, why it's important for her to have um, a tableware that is, you know, um, warm and inviting and mm. ma- uh, handmade. And she said, it's because if I could, I would want to deliver my food from my hands to your hands. Mm. But because that's not possible, I wanted to make sure that the vessel that I'm using also cr- carries the same amount of warmth mm. as it goes to you. And so hearing, you know, little, you know, anecdotes like this, I think are, is really important. Um, and, and also, you know, it's, it's a bilingual Japanese and English book. And um, I wrote both pieces, but whenever I write in Japanese and in English, it's also important for me to um, not do any sort of direct translation. Hmm. So when I write uh, the copy in Japanese, I just put my Japanese hat on. Hmm. And then when I write in English, I don't refer to the Japanese. I just put my English speaking hat on Hmm. because I think what people want to know and also the basic foundation of knowledge is quite different. Um, and. In context
0: and uh, maybe even if you're trying to uh, translate like an idiom or something, it's, you have to kind of stretch the meaning a bit. So absolutely. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That must've been a lot of work though. Cause yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, it's like easy. Two books. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to do just copy paste into, you know, you
2: translate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you do yeah. really customizing
2: it to your audience. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, you know, I do that whenever I do the two, right. The two um, languages, because, um, it's interesting in terms of food culture. Japanese people come at it from more of like a, uh, memories perspective. Um, it's very difficult to have a conversation, let's say about natural agricultural practices from a political perspective or an environmental perspective. People say, ah, don't talk about difficult things, mm. maybe controversial, controversial. Absolutely. Um, whereas, English speaking, um, community is often very welcoming to speaking about things from, about, um, grassroots movements and how we can make a difference and how our, how we spend our money Mm. is essentially a vote towards those, making those differences. Activism Mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, precisely activism language that does not work in in Japan. Mm. And I slowly learned that over time. It was Mm. very, because I hit a lot of walls talking to different types of people. And I realized that not just the actual speaking language, but the the vocabulary and the approach to the conversation mm. needs to be separate also. Mm. Very
1: interesting. Now I guess it's not like so it's not like a, a guidebook for people who will visit you are vegan and want to visit Tokyo, right? And like when you there's beautiful pictures in this book. And when you look at it, it's more it's not like about, you know, no no, no judgment here, but it's not like, you know, like hipster cafe serving vegan food. It's like traditional Japanese food in some Traditional looking or nice modern cafe, right? And and I guess it's not like linked to like any political view. I guess for most Japanese, because it's part of what Japanese culture is. It's a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usually, they don't didn't have any beef or pork uh, before. You know. Yes. <laughs> That's worldwide, right? so I guess a lot of these uh, dishes are you know still on table. In many form for many many families in Japan, right?
2: Mm-hmm, precisely, mm. and you know, especially with the Japanese copy, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't political. Mm. Um, and it's it, but uh, just a reminder: ah, this is plant based too, or ah, I didn't know that this was mostly okay. vegetables. Mm. You don't think about it. You don't mm. think about it, mm. um and. For some people, it can absolutely be used as a guidebook, although it's kind yes. of bulky and big because it's hardcover. I'm not sure that a traveler would just put it in their, um, backpack, but it could, can act as a, as a guide. Um, yes. or it could act as like a coffee table book or a storytelling book as well. It's very beautiful.
1: It's a really yeah. nice book. Yep.
0: Is there a component like um, a digital map, uh, component to it? That you can okay, (laughs) so that's good for the the wanting to use it as a guide uh, guidebook.
2: Yes, absolutely. There's um once you purchase the book, you can access um a link and a password, and it'll connect to Google Maps where we have um all of the pins in a map. Um, But the photographer I worked with Waki Hamatsu, she's like so fantastic about of you know in, um, in terms of creating this kind of like warm and very. I don't like to use the word authentic but real environment um, so there aren't any quote unquote beauty shots where it's a white background and just mm-hmm. the food it's kind of in that it's in its own natural mm-hmm. environment mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know my words, of course, but, you know, this day and age, very p- few people actually read the words. It's the mm-hmm. photos that tell this story. And so I do have to tip my hat to her because she's done such a wonderful job in doing the uh, visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so everyone should pick up a
0: copy of Plant-Based Tokyo. Where, where can people find the book?
2: Um, domestically, well, in Japan or in Tokyo, because it's a Tokyo guidebook, it's mostly found in Tokyo Um uh, bookshops. Uh, otherwise, it's found on Amazon in Japan. I think if it's if you buy it on Amazon internationally, the shipping charge can be quite a lot. Um, in Europe, um, I believe there is still a stockist, Bonsu, um, in the UK. Hmm. Um, and there used to be a stockist in San Francisco, if you were in the US. Um, so sometimes there's these kind of boutique stockists that come mm-hmm. up here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look online, you might be able to find it. But if you'd like, you know, once you get to Japan, you can go to your local bookshop and hopefully find 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 the book. And then also one day, um, Waki and I have been talking about wanting to do something similar in Kyoto. So. Oh, yes. The next <laughs> yes. one will be like Kyoto. Yeah. It would be wonderful.
0: Yeah. yeah, we'll include some links in the the show notes to this episode so people can find where to buy it.
1: Thank those. you, thank you.
0: Yeah, uh, returning to what you're talking about, this a uh, different way of communicating about plant based eating uh, for the Japanese and the foreign context, and I think that's that's so interesting. In Japan, you know, there's a saying like the nail that sticks out gets hammered down, yes. and I think that really plays out also in kind of um, a different approaches to eating that is off the mainstream and once you go down that path people can be judgmental of you because they feel judged and kind of like by taking an action that's off the mainstream you know it's that um you think maybe that you're superior you know that this is kind of a strange um misconception about i think veganism in japan although it's changed a lot uh and there's a lot of um there are a lot more restaurants and uh, you can access plant-based ingredients now um and yeah there's a big kind of hurdles still in japan though just culturally and also with the shizen no uh you know, in Japan, we have our produce at the supermarkets, always perfect looking and no kind of knobby shapes or um, very nicely shaped things that it's hard to achieve with without uh, typical kind of mass uh, farming with pesticide use and all that. So there is that, um, yeah, a bit uh, mainstream... Uh, kind of taken for granted like this is how it should be Mm. that i think there presents some challenges but i have hope too (laughs) then you know there are people like you who are leading the way and educating people in a very uh, context-based way so Mm. yeah thank you (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. yes speaking of that should we talk about packaging as
2: well (laughs) yes yes and the food we have have here
1: so like packaging I guess like everyone who've been to Japan of a surprise. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. It's nicely packaged,
2: but maybe it's too much.
1: <laughs> it's way too much. Yeah.
2: Japan loves plastic packaging. Yes. <laughs> Including on the fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Um, can you speak about that? Like culturally why mm-hmm. does Japan continue to this day to want to wrap everything that even don't that things that don't need to be wrapped excessively in plastic? Why mm-hmm. is
2: that? Um, there are so many reasons. Um, part of it is kind of indeed sociopolitical, mm-hmm. um, and uh, is connected to, um, kind of our h- hygiene services and, um, Japan agriculture, um, rules and regulations. Um, but What I always say in terms of packaging is that the idea of packaging, the concept of packaging is really lovely. Mm. And what it is, is that when you have something and you're giving it to someone else, you don't want to give it to someone naked. Mm. (laughs) You want to take the time and energy to package it Mm. and give it to them. And, um, Earlier, before we started recording, you had shared with me that furoshiki sells really well on Bento and Co. for the French market, for example. And this furoshiki is, is literally there to package and it's reusable and it's something that can be passed down through the generations and it can be made with all different types of material, whether it's cotton or linen. And it is something that is is essentially kind of what my chef friend said, which is you, you know, you can't just give it literally from hand to hand. And so you want to envelop it in something that has some warmth. Mm-hmm. And so the the concept of packaging really comes from there. But in 2022 it's been replaced with a lot of synthetic materials. And that's I think what we need to change is the ma- use of materials and not necessarily the concept of packaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think whether it's, you know, bento boxes or whether it's furoshiki, being able to buy and use something that can be reused over over and over again, as opposed to s- kind of single use waste, is um, where we want to get to. Um, and uh, Totoya, the, the zero waste um, supermarket, and Greengrocer here in Tokyo also does a really fantastic job doing that. Mm.
1: In Kyoto.
2: In Kyoto. Yeah. Did I say Tokyo? <laughs> <laughs> it's, okay. it's
1: only in, in, Tokyo, in Kyoto, right?
2: Uh, well, actually, they started in Tokyo okay. and had like a little shop and still do. Um, but Kyoto is their headquarter.
3: This podcast is brought to you by Bento & Co., Based in beautiful Kyoto, Japan, Bento & Co. has been helping people around the world eat healthier, reduce their environmental impact, and save money with authentic Japanese bento boxes since 2008. Discover bento boxes, cookware, food, and more at en.bentoandco.com or click the link in our show notes and use code PODCAST for 10% off your first order. Mm.
0: And they opened up just over a year ago. So Mm. they're a brand new shop. And actually today we have some items that we bought there. Um, What's amazing about Totoya is that you can come with your own box or your own container and buy things in bulk um, and buy food from their deli as well. And so that's what we've done today. Actually, we've ha- we have an assortment of some plant based yummy foods from Totoya that we're going to enjoy together. Um, have, have you both of you have been to Totoya a mm-hmm. few times? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. What what do you what, what do you think about it?
2: I think that not just domestically, but definitely internationally, there are a lot of. Um, that it, there's a lot of greenwashing and branding. Um, and I have to say that amongst all of them, for me, Totoya ranks really high in tr- in terms of being very genuine mm. to their mission. Um, and so sometimes they will have vegetables that don't look perfect, right. And don't um, and are withering, um, but you can still use them and they're still nutritious and still beautifully delicious. Um And if, if they don't get sold, then they create, you know, preserved foods with it that can be used in their deli items or in jarred, um, seasonings and that sort of thing. So of course you can buy your dry goods like beans and grains and that sort of thing. You can also kind of participate in the uh, fresh food cycle of buying things fresh. And if they don't get used in time, they get preserved and, you know, kind of the natural, um, uh, cycle of mm-hmm. foods of yesteryear mm. that we're kind of missing right mm. now. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. Okay, so what do we have in this? Yes,
2: <laughs> do we Toma,
0: you went to pick it up. So, yes, can you tell us uh, while while you talk? I'll serve and we can eat as we talk as well. I can do that.
1: So we have uh, the potatoes and walnuts croquette. Mm. We have some diced meat, so soybeans meat mm-hmm. meatballs.
2: So it's perfect. Actually, this, this, um, bento box is essentially speaking to a hybrid between the autumn season and the summer season. Yes. And so you have the inklings of the autumn vegetables and the root vegetables, like the daikon and the carrot. But then you also have the remnants of summer, like eggplant and tomato and that sort of thing. So this is a really fun season because you're kind of crossing between both and it's all within one within one box.
0: Yeah. Speaking of seasons, we really feel it right now because of the uh, typhoon that came this weekend and then suddenly became very cool, so we're like in s- uh, autumn mode now. Oh, I suddenly. know, because it's
2: literally like 10 degrees cooler than yesterday, yes. it's kind Even of... Sh- more. Yeah, it's shocking for the body, isn't it? It is.
1: Itadakimasu! <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs>
0: We'll cross the barrier. <laughs> I was about to dive in. Thank you, Momoko. Sensei. So funny. I'm going to start. Looks like um, eggplant. Mm. Mm. Delicious. That's some basil seasoning
2: mm. flavor. Shiso, maybe? Ah. Oh.
1: Shiso, yes. Uh, the, the the crumbles on the top. I wonder if you put like miso on it.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's very savory. Yeah, so it's Totoya's is revolutionary for Japan. And <laughs> it's um yeah, a wonderful initiative. And I, I wish them all the best. And I hope that in Japan that there'll be more stores like them too. Yes. There's
1: actually a, a similar one just in front of Bit white.
0: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: What's what it's called? Down the street. Yeah. hmm
2: Zero waste Kyoto. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, that's one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, when um several years ago when I was speaking with someone about um bulk supermarkets, bulk mm. purchasing in Japan, um, and why you know, we were speaking about why it isn't prevalent here. Mm. And You know, just like everything, it really comes down to education. And the way that Japanese people are educated is more people are just more of on the receiving end. And so often, apparently, what Japanese people say is, I don't know what the appropriate amount is to purchase for my size of family. Hmm. Because in all food packaging, it's like, oh, you know, feeds four people. Or, you know, if you're buying pasta, it'll oh. be like for two people. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. is pre measured. And so, yeah. And so it's very difficult for people to kind of go out of that mm. and just say, I, it's, it's not an individual based uh, culture. So it's not like I want this amount. So I will purchase that amount. It's more because people are more receiving of information. It's like the shop provides A, B, and C sizes. Amongst that I will pick, you know, Mm. but again, I do think that that's changing. And it's really, I think about having that option available more Mm. than anything else. Like it will never be the only option, but it is great to have that option as part of the education.
1: Mm. Mm. It's like when you buy meat, it's raw, but it tells you what to cook with it. You, You don't buy like a piece of pork, you buy like something for shabu shabu. Or you buy mm-hmm. for curry.
0: Shogayaki-yo, yeah, for oh, yeah, right? ginger pork. So like it's,
1: yeah. it's, it's sliced and, and measured like for like a, uh, like a typical, you know, uh, dishes instead of, I wish I could like buy 200 gram of this and 100 gram of this because I want to do this, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And no. So I'm always looking like for, you know, like a Nikuya san, like a, a voucher where I could like buy some piece of meat, not because of a dish, you know. Right. They, asked me to do, but <laughs> something else I would like to, to cook. Yes. That's difficult.
2: Mm, yeah. But you're right. On, on that, that, uh, in the butcher section mm. of the supermarket, it does say on the packaging for what type of yeah. dish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which probably, Calé, even
1: or Shabu Shabu.
2: And that kind of dictates what
0: people are cooking. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's nice if you're a busy, you know, working parent or something. You're like, oh, what do I do? Okay, okay, this is on sale. Okay, uh, shogayaki-yo. Okay, I'll go home and make that. You know, it kind of solves the problem of what to make. Right, you don't In have to ways, think. some ways, it's like convenient, of- but then it's kind of like a... If you want to be cynical about it, it's like, oh, we're being controlled by society and even what we eat and how we choose to season our foods or something.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I do see that there are loads of um, green grocers and tofu shops still here and there across the city. Mm Tofu, yes. Yes. There's
1: another uh, shoten guy that is nice, I like, is the one on the demachinagi.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: The there also that's right.
0: a
2: really fun so, one. That's yes. um at the delta. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a there's a shotengai at the delta. Yes. Okay. Where there's futaba. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. Yes. The
1: futaba, the mochi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yeah, there's this Shotengai there.
2: Kind of retro showa feel. The, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. I remember now. I've had um I've been to a udon shop that also has sabazushi there. Yes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's
1: famous, I think, there's always people lining right? Throat, right? I think it's been
2: around for a long time. So I've been there. Um, yeah, my family lineage is in Kyoto, about 300 or 400 years in Kyoto. Mm. Um, and my um, and my father's, gen- to my father's generation. And so actually my family registry, I am mm-hmm. also registered in Kyoto, but mm. I've never lived here before. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and so, and, you know, my family lives here. Mm. Um, my parents live here still, and so um, it's interesting for me because I'm very much learning about Kyoto. Mm. But um, but uh, yes, my ancestral roots are here, which is mm. another reason I'm here. return to your
3: roots.
1: Right. Nice. Cool. <laughs> There's a, a lot of good food to eat in Kyoto for
3: sure.
0: Yeah. Speaking of which, this all this Totoya food is really good. I'm enjoying the. Uh, it's a, it's like a falafel, actually. Oh, yeah. It, like, it really
1: um, looks like a falafel. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: With like, Jagaimo,
1: um, nuts, korokke.
0: Yeah, oh, right. Oh, okay. There's, there's nuts in here. Yeah. And there was um, soybean as well, daizu mm-hmm. inside, mm-hmm. which was really and nice the color, Japanese like, touch. It feels like there's some curry Yeah, there's definitely yeah, curry flavoring. Mm-hmm, it's good. Mm-hmm. I was eating the daikon, Kiriboshi daikon, and it was so crunchy that mm-hmm. I was afraid the mic is going to pick it up, so I stopped. <laughs> but it, that one is super delicious, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, this actually. would be really good with some pita. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that they're incorporating Japanese ingredients mm-hmm. and melding it with other uh, world cuisines. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's really nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so kind of wrapping things up mm-hmm. <laughs> since we are a uh, seller bento boxes and mm-hmm. we love everything about bento we ask all our guests this question what is your dream bento this can be a bento you've mm-hmm. had in the past like a, a memory with bento or it can be a bento you would like to create in the future
2: mm. mm-hmm. gosh that is an excellent excellent question um well, of course, I really live by the micro season, and so I like eating precisely what is in season right now. But in terms of the overall genre, um, one of my favorite foods is ochazuke, mm-hmm. which is rice <laughs> with well tea or some sort of broth. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, it used to be that Japanese people would only cook rice once a day. And so at some day part, whether it's the morning day part or the evening day part, you would eat cold, cold rice. So sometimes that would be in bento form, but often it would be in uchazuke form. And I love uchazuke, uchazuke because it I love rice and I love tea. Mm. Mm. And it, there's something very like warming and soothing about it. It's kind of the flavors of my childhood. Um, and I really kind of have... I really dove into the world of rice, you know, doing my rice 100 projects speaking with loads of rice farmers across the Japanese countryside. And so I have this strong affinity to rice. And so I like to mix it with um genmaicha, which is a tea that has rice rice mm. in it. So it's like double double rice. And in that um uh I in that I like to add like little kind of seasonal dishes on top of the rice. And so I would love like a bento solution where I can do an ojazuke, um, mm. you know, on the go. Mm.
1: <laughs> but you need to bring the rice and put the ochazuke just before eating. Right?
2: Precisely
0: so. Okay. Yeah, our kokeshi bento yeah, that good. has a oan at mm-hmm. the top, mm-hmm. actually. That's the head of the, the, the hair of the kokeshi <sighs> uh-huh. bento. The hat, yeah. yeah the hat. hat that you can mm-hmm. take off. Mm-hmm. And then you can bring a thermos with your tea. And then when you're ready to eat, just pour it over. Yeah,
3: there you go. <laughs> you yeah. already have a, I have a solution. for
0: you, Monko. <laughs> that sounds nice. I've never really thought of ojazuke as a bento food because you would need that hot tea and you know it's it's hard to you, you don't want to put the tea in at the beginning and then it gets all mushy you know you want to have yeah. that nice contrast well, I mean, Usually yeah.
1: anywhere you can go you can have hot water in Japan, right yeah so,
2: so i would just put the tea leaves a, in yes. mm. yeah just
1: hard water, water and on.
2: pour hot water mm-hmm. and like the thing is this is just another personal quirk but like i don't like using tea bags i like the loose leaf tea so if there's a way to do that mm. without having the leaves go into my rice that's, like, another added <laughs> plus. <Wow. laughs> if there's some sort of, like, sieve ah, okay.
0: functionality,
2: <laughs> that would be I really think we nice. we have to design a custom, which a given. To. Yeah. <laughs> given. But you're right. Like, you can get hot water anywhere. Yes. So all you have to do is bring the tea leaves and the rice. Mm. Um, and it's already quite light. Uh, when I was a child, I
0: my family and I kind of moved back and forth between the U S and Japan. And one summer we were in America and I was so homesick for Japanese food. I was only a little kid, like six years old and Mm. I got so uh, homesick specifically for what does So I threw a tantrum and I said, so my mom went to some Asian supermarket and was able to find the nagataniya, you know, and that soothed me. But there's yeah something just very comforting about what I mean. That was like the you know instant version, yeah. but the authentic you know mm-hmm. one that you make with real tea that is. It's so simple, but so grounding and soothing. Mm, so mm, mm, yeah, mm. I would, I would also like to try it. What is it so called? <laughs> I'll try it
2: out and let you know how it goes. Yes, yay!
1: <laughs> That's something I learned to appreciate.
2: Oh, I, learned it. <laughs> mm. I understand. It's yeah, not yeah, something yeah. that is uh, logical at first. No, yeah, really. not at all. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's really good. I like it.
2: Mm. Yeah, <laughs> now, yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm.
1: Mm. Thank you, Mukofa. Thank
2: you so this much. Way. This is really special. Thank, Thank you.
3: Thank
0: you. Yeah, I learned so much. And um, yeah, I really like your approach of drawing from Japanese tradition and um, learning how we can live uh, sustainably and um to be grateful for food and the people
1: who produce it and the yeah, earth. And yeah, yeah. yeah, there's so much to mm-hmm. uncover in, in tradition.
2: Yes. So, yeah. thank you. Bad yeah. bad. Yes, wonderful.
3: Thanks for listening to this episode of Japanese Food. This podcast is brought to you by Bento Co. and is produced by Julianne Picardal and Thomas Bertrand. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts to stay up to date with the podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Japanese food pod.